and welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host, Brady Josephson, and today I have the privilege of chatting with Harvey McKinnon. He is a guru of monthly giving. He wrote a book called Hidden Gold, which was the first book on the subject of monthly giving. He's since written many other books, like The 11 Questions Every Donor Asks and The Power of Giving, How Giving Back Enshrines Us All. We talk about some of those books, but we really focus on his newest book, which is called How to Create Lifelong Donors Through Monthly Giving. That is How to Create Lifelong Donors Through Monthly Giving. I'm repeating it because if you listen to the interview, you know that I absolutely butcher the title of his book, so I want to make sure I get it right <laughs> at least a couple times to make up. So in this interview, we talk a lot about monthly giving, obviously the book, some of his experiences over time. Uh, We talk a little bit about why people don't give and some of his uh, work and research around the power of giving, which is interesting. Then there's a fun little speed round where we ask a bunch of different questions of Harvey, like his favorite books to reread, people that uh, you should listen to or follow on social. And if you had to restart civilization today, how many years it would take to rebuild. So a little teaser there for you if you want to know Harvey McKinnon's answer to said question. Anyways, thank you as always for listening and hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. I said, welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Oh, welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Harvey, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Brady. All right. So people often know you, or you've been called at least the guru of monthly giving, and we're going to talk about monthly giving. Uh, And you've got a new book, which is great. Uh, But one of the things I didn't actually know is that you've produced not just one, but multiple documentary films as well. How did that come about? How did you get into making docs? Um, Well, long story. I'll try and make it short. I did a lot of anti-apartheid work in the 70s and 80s, which I guess ages me a little. And one of the films I was touring around Atlanta, Canada, was uh, Generations of Resistance, another one, White Logger, by a filmmaker, Peter Davis. And they were great films. They were used by the ANC inside South Africa, used globally uh, to uh, you know, raise consciousness around what was happening in South Africa. And back around 1987, I met him in Vancouver because he had done work on a film about apartheid. And we became friends. And then he called me one day and said, he was living in New York at the time, called me and asked me if I'd raise money for a film he was trying to produce called In Darkest Hollywood Cinema and Apartheid, feature-length documentary looking at how cinema portrays South African and apartheid. And I said, sure because I knew how to raise money. And apparently, if you want to be a film producer, all you have to do is raise money. It's really, really easy uh, if you have the skills. And so I raised about 50% of the budget they had, went to South Africa. We shot the film, won a lot of awards. It was on the BBC, PBS. Um, and I kind of got a little bit of a bug. And then I was watching at World AIDS Day, this guy speaking on AIDS. I was dragged by my wife to the event. She was doing some volunteer work for the AIDS committee. And it was, uh, and I knew this guy, John Gates, and I thought he's amazing. One of the best speakers I'd ever heard. Hmm. And so I turned around and said, I want to make a film about him because he was talking about how AIDS at the time, this is in 1989 ish, 1990, hmm. um, 
know, people didn't talk about it much and it was pretty depressing. There's no cure and not that there is today, um, but there weren't the antiviral drugs. So um, I called Peter Davis and said, do you want to work on this? And he did. And he'd literally drive from upstate New York to Ottawa to film John with tail ends of 16 millimeter film. So we get 30 seconds here, 60 seconds there. And I eventually raised enough money to make the film and make another film about AIDS in Africa. But that's kind of how I started producing it, where I was actually involved in it. And then we did a bunch of films on the environmental crisis on the Black Sea and the Danube and biographies of David Suzuki, famous Canadian environmentalist, and William Shatner too, who most people have probably never heard of, but you know, he's been around for a while. Well, they, so if they have, they've probably seen him in the, the Priceline commercials <laughs> or something right. like that. Not, not well known. Well, that's interesting. So it was fundraising that was the route into your kind of filmmaking. It really was. And there was also an overlap with the things that I cared about, social justice and the environment. Um, so that was another way to talk about the issues that were meaningful to me. I wasn't just raising money for causes uh, doing this, but I was actually producing uh, information, education documentaries that we could reach other people because as we all know video is pretty even 30 years ago was pretty important and it's pretty important yeah. now yeah well you mentioned that you kind of got the bug what was it around about kind of um filmmaking or storytelling that kind of uh, hooked you or kind of gave you the bug well i think uh the experience in south africa was pretty interesting making this film mm-hmm. seeing how people cut things together told stories and the wanting to do the John Gates thing, he uh, made people laugh and cry, laugh and cry all through his talk. Powerful mm-hmm. speaker. He had AIDS at the time. And his mission was in the last year of his life was to try and make people in Western societies uh, not treat AIDS like another tropical disease where we find a cure and deal with it in the West and people still die in the developing world. And he also believed that unless women, became um, agents where they could control their own lives. You couldn't cure AIDS because men had so much power in these societies. So there's like three or four messages like this that really moved me. And I thought, I want to preserve his message because he only has, it turned out, a year to live. And Mm -hmm. the two films we shot around AIDS, one about women fighting AIDS in Africa and Zimbabwe, um, were stories that I thought wanted you know, deserve to be told. And the women we work with in Zimbabwe, um, even though we were white male North Americans, mm-hmm. they were pretty thrilled that we were doing this because uh, as Tisa Chief Munisa, one of the women said, nobody else wanted to do this. Uh, we worked together with them on this, told their stories. And it was seen by millions of people in Zimbabwe and other countries and aired around the world. So um, mm-hmm. it was, it's basically storytelling. We're, you know, we're all driven by stories. Yeah. And if, um, I found stories over the life that moved me. Then I try and become engaged and do some work around this issue. Cool. Interesting. Well, I mean, we could probably just talk forever on stories and docs, but we're going to move on to something else. Uh, we're going to talk about your new book, which is around monthly giving again. So why did you decide to write another book? You've written numerous books, but this is your first book on monthly giving for a while now. Why did you decide to write mm-hmm. another book on monthly giving? And how is it different than, say, Hidden Gold? Well, Hidden Gold was done in 1999. 19, I probably wrote in 98, came out in 99. And as you know, the world has changed in the, that 22-year period. So back then, there was basically no face-to-face to speak of. 
relatively little television, direct response television. Um, Facebook didn't exist. YouTube didn't exist. Social media didn't exist. So there's been remarkable changes. And so it felt like because monthly giving is so important to charities, is like the backbone for many charities, that I wanted to do a new book that talked about all the other different channels that people can use. And also because when I first did the book, Hidden Gold, there weren't a lot of organizations doing it around the world compared to there are today. So pretty much every organization that has any decent leadership has a monthly giving program of some sort. Some of them are small uh, and some of them should be a lot larger. But it felt like exploring, um, you know, all the new things that are going on would be an important thing to do. And we have way more data on what works and what doesn't as well. Right. So um, one of the, the stories that you tell in the book or one of the, the, it's got a great chapter title is always answer the phone at 8.37 p.m. Uh, I love that chapter title. Can you unpack that one a little bit? Because it gets that kind of this power of, of monthly giving. Sure. Well, back uh, when I worked at Oxfam, the International Development Agency, um, you know, 79 89, uh, I think it was probably 80 or 79, I got a call from a friend. They were at a restaurant right across the street from my office. I was working 8.37 at night writing some coffee probably. And uh, they said, hey, we saw the light on your office. Do you want to come over and join us for coffee? So I said, sure, I'll happy to. So I went over with three friends or three reporters for the three different dailies, on one national and two local. And um, it turned out they didn't have enough money to pay for coffee or the tip, which is why they were scrambling people didn't have credit cards back in those days i guess is that um, why they called you <laughs> that is actually they why they called me i mean they're still <laughs> all friends but nonetheless they had a motive for that but i seized upon the moment to fill out um three reply forms for oxfam's monthly giving program so i wrote in in blue ink their names their addresses and i said yes i want to become a monthly donor to oxfam and support international development blah 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 and all I had to do is check a box. And at the time, there were three boxes, 15, 25, and 40. So this is in 79. So in, with inflation, that might be 35 to $100. Uh, so I came in, they had some retina, so that probably helped. So I just passed one to Rod and Doug and Suzanne and said, uh, you guys can sign up. And they all did, which was great. And one signed up for 15, another for 25, another for 40. And the person who signed up at 15 is now giving 40. And basically, that's somewhere around $18,000 minimum uh, over the lifetime of their giving. One person dropped out after eight years because he did a sabbatical in France. And I see him you know, a couple of times a year and he said, yeah, I got to get back on that program. I think he sent some individual donations since then. But uh, it's not only that this added to be a phenomenal amount of money with just almost next to no work, but it really made me say like this is a gold mine for charities, even though we had a program, we really started heavily investing in it. And um, one of the people on this program who's giving 40 now has uh, owns two houses in Vancouver, as you know better than most, uh, <laughs> one of the hottest markets in the world, uh, has a spouse who's a high income earning person, uh, has been great with money over the years, and has no children between the two of them. So they have money in their uh, estate that they will likely give to charities. And my theory is that a charity, if it does its work at all, that you've given 12 gifts a year for 40 years, 
is probably at the top of the list of right. uh, an estate gift. And we know from a lot of research we've done is that monthly and more than research, like testing and analysis, that monthly donors are uh, your best legacy prospects yeah, for almost all charities. There's some smaller categories like volunteers that are a little, slightly better, but you actually have most organizations will have relatively few volunteers compared to monthly donors. Yeah. It's such a it's such a cool story because it, uh, there's so many of the the layers in there that makes monthly giving so powerful, right? I mean, the longevity of it, the amount over time, the relationship mm-hmm. built. But the other thing that stood out to me when I read that story is kind of how easy the ask is of sorts, right? So often, you know, fundraisers are like, man, I'm going to ask this person for five thousand dollars or whatever it is, and there's a sense of nervousness and that's a big kind of change or whatever. But you know, asking a friend, hey, can you get fifteen dollars a month? You know, it's it takes a lot of the, the kind of fear off the table and they end up giving, you know, the same amount over right. time. And we've uh, seen, as I'm sure you have a lot of growth in monthly giving, not over the past few years, but even in the past few months during COVID. Cause I think a lot of people understand the need for sustainability, but they also, yeah, I can, I can squeeze out $5 a month, you know, out of my budget, yeah. you know, f- for causes right now. Whereas you know, when you give a hundred bucks right now, it's like, oof, you know, that, that one lump sum, there's that difference, you know, the sticker price and the actual price. And uh, that jumped out to me too in the book of just like, yeah, it's a pretty easy thing to ask some friends to give you know, 15 bucks, especially exactly. when they got some wine. Yeah. yeah. And we have seen, like we have a lot of clients and they all have pretty dynamic monthly giving programs. And there's virtually no drop off um, during this COVID crisis. Now, Amazing. I'm not saying that's going to be the case for all organizations, but we've even had growth in some of them. And we like, if you're out there asking in this COVID crisis, we've seen phenomenal success from even non-COVID clients because so many groups stopped asking, which is insane. Crazy. Um, one of the other things that, that you mentioned in the book uh, from that story, and you actually pull in later on around the ask amount. And it's one of the questions that, you know, we get asked all the time, anytime we talk about donation pages is like the gift array and how much do you ask for? What What do you say when people say, hey, how much, how much should we ask for? Well, it partly depends on if you're asking non-donors or prospects and donors, because if you're talking to donors, you have some sense of what their giving has been in the past. So if you've got a donor that's giving you $5,000, you're not going to ask them for $25 a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you even ask them for a monthly gift. And if you have a donor that's giving $5 three times a year, you're not going to ask them for $20 a month. So what you want to do is relate the ask to their previous giving. And so there's, you can have a grid for this and lots of decision-making goes into this. But testing is obviously the best way for everything, as you know, better than anybody. So, that with, so you have some control over your donor base as to what you ask. What I often try and do is look at, okay, what are they giving on an annual basis? And, and, and the analysis we've done over the years, most people, when they convert to monthly, will give two to three times more per year. Some of them give 12 times more, but hardly anybody gives exactly the same unless that's your ask. So if somebody is giving 100 and you say, could you give $8.33 a month? They may right. do that or they may round it up to 10. But mm-hmm. so all these things kind of depend on how you run your program. So there's lots of things that anybody who knows direct marketing, of, uh, whether digitally or mail, or even probably phone to some extent, will have a good sense of how to 
figure out what is the best thing to ask, I think. The trickier thing always is for non-donors. And so, again, the channel is critical. So if you're doing face-to-face fundraising, organizations can test that. Um, most organizations will ask between $17 and $21, that in, in my experience. But there's some, if you're a child sponsorship organization, and it's $37 a month, that's what you have to ask for. And some organizations that don't have a good brand or brand recognition may start lower. So if you are a small a charity that's working to save uh, homeless dogs um, and nobody's heard of you before, well, people will take a risk at $7 a month, um, $5 a month, $10 a month, but they're not likely going to join at $30 a month, which they might for the SBCA, for instance, branding right. recognition. So if you're doing stuff, um, again, digitally, you just test it and find out for your audience what works best. Many years ago, there was an international development agency form that wanted to do child sponsorship. At the time, the market leader was World Vision. And I think at the time, they were charging $21 a month to sponsor a child. Well, the unique selling proposition of this organization was $10 a month to sponsor a child because they mm-hmm. didn't have the name recognition, but people who wanted to do this and couldn't afford $21, could start at $10. And they became wildly successful at this offer now. Whether they <laughs> fed the kids half as much, I don't know. But that was their, you know, it's, there's some questions on how is that legitimate as if, if it really takes $21 a month at the time, um, what are you doing for 10 But it worked uh, in a fundraising perspective. Yeah. No, I, I thought that was the the kind of like rule of thumb, you know, how much do they give in a year and it's, you know, two to three times. It's just a handy kind yeah. of ballpark to start from and then get into testing. You know, and what's so interesting on the testing side is we've been doing more amount more and more around recurring is um it has this added variable, right, of kind of the the lifetime value building in that you should be doing for one time, but you have to do for recurring, otherwise it'll yeah. never make sense. And then even that adds in these values of like, do we do, you know, full year churn? What is the average churn rate? What's the recapture? Like you get, it can get complicated, you know, in a hurry. So I think um, even we and many others, I'm sure have to deal with more of the ins and outs and sophistication around how do you properly evaluate what's going on? Um, right. with recurring. Well, it's an incredibly important point because I think the key thing to really great fundraising is looking at long-term or lifetime value. And figuring out how you measure that for your organization critical because I saw somebody actually do a webinar, saw a webinar on monthly giving recently. I won't name the person. They were talking about this um, monthly giving recruitment campaign they did on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And they were telling me, like, you're speaking at a conference and you think this is a good thing. Smart person. But for, I, did, I just ran the numbers, like back of the envelope kind of thing. And it was costing somewhere around, to acquire a new monthly donor. Then I looked at how much they were giving a month and likely the attrition rate given normal attrition rates that we see a lot of. Their break even, if they ever broke even, would be seven or eight years. They thought this was a success, but it's a total disaster. You could have put that money into many other channels and done way better. So people's interpretation of numbers in my experience in the fundraising world is pretty bad. People are just not good with numbers. They're great at storytelling. They're great at 
passion right. and the great of caring. But if you're not following the numbers carefully, you're not going to make really good decisions and you're possibly going to make bad decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And there's two parts of that, right? One is, do you even have access to that information, which a lot of nonprofits just don't have in the first place? Yeah. And then second, do you understand the numbers or know how to actually make yeah. decisions? Yeah. And I know one of the and things I, that we often try. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say that if you don't know the numbers, that's a, you know, if anybody's listening to this podcast, well, I'm sure lots of people are listening to this podcast, <laughs> but if anybody feels for their organizations, you're not getting the numbers and don't have the data, then you're spending money blindly. Yep. It's just not a good way to use donor dollars because the money you're spending is mostly donor dollars to get more money. And if you can't measure it, then you're responsible. Yeah, no, exactly. It's wasteful. I know one of the things that, that we've, that we do and, and kind of teaches be very conservative and be very simple, right? So even two year, um, take the total giving over two year, average it out by donor type, and then use that as a baseline projection, knowing that there are more, especially recurring donors are a lot more likely to stay beyond two years. But that's a very, very, very conservative projection. If you can make that projection work, then, hey, you, you should be good, right? And so, again, it can get a lot more complicated and you know, recurring donors by channel and campaign and all this kind of stuff. And then you start get, wading through so many numbers that you, you lose the, you know, you lose track of it. So even yeah. just a simple way to, to understand those, those numbers are absolutely critical. Um, so now, um, I would say about the channels, I'd, I'd say if you've got two main channels or three main channels where you're recruiting people to spend the time to analyze those, because if we look at, a direct mail acquired donor, well, most of our clients, their retention level is around 90%. But for face-to-face, -face, it's anywhere from 50 to 60% of year one. Right. And if you just project that out over four years, you've still got about 70% of the direct mail donors who stay almost forever. But you've got 15% of the face-to-face -face donors. And again, that's often because the back end's so bad. It's not necessarily um, the channel, even though you have a much higher drop-off. but that can mean that a direct mail acquired donor, even if they're joining for a little less, is worth five times more on average over their right. lifetime of giving. So organizations have to look at this. If they look at it in the short term, uh, they will likely make mistakes. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, we talked a little bit about the kind of website and digital side of things and how that's kind of transforming or different than maybe when you wrote the first book, what are some of the things that you've seen around kind of optimizing a website or donation page to help secure monthly gifts? Well, the core things, which I know you will agree with, keep it simple, um, mm -hmm. keep it clean, have really strong copywriting, make sure the tech works. I was trying to make a donation about a month ago to a food bank back in Nova Scotia, across the country, because somebody was raising money. I wanted to, twice I got, uh, I tried twice. I had to fill out a lot of forms because they wouldn't take my auto fill in thing. But I was motivated. And after I did the second time, I thought, okay, I'm not doing this a third time. And I've not given the money and they would have had me on their donor list. So that is really, really important. And I did a book, which I think, you know, called 11 Questions Every Donor Asks. And I was thinking recently that the three most important questions in that, will my gift make a difference? Probably the top one. Um, is it urgent? But the third one, and it might even be the second one, is it easy to give? Mm -hmm. um, and so 
I look at a lot of websites and many of them are not easy to give or they want to ask you all these questions and every extra question, as you know, impedes the process, et cetera. So I think the core thing is look at organizations that are doing it really well, mimic what they're doing, try and collect as little information as possible and make sure your technology is working. People get quick thank yous, that sort of thing. Yeah. No, one of the advantages that we have, I mean, we're doing it right now where we're making making 80 donations in nine different countries and we're looking at the online giving experience and, you know, we make hundreds of donations. And what we see every time is about 10 to up to 30% of um, what sites we can't complete our gift. Mm-hmm. And these are, you know, not like small, tiny charities. They're like median revenues are often 80, 90, hundred million dollars. And it's just broken form, didn't work something's off there's a bug and if you think about just like the thousands of dollars especially if it's a recurring gift that doesn't go through that is a significant amount of revenue again it's just it's yeah. wasted it's, it's needlessly not captured right yeah. and making test donations once a quarter is something that we say give give on a mobile device give on your computer yeah. once a quarter and just make sure that things are working uh it's a pretty simple thing and we've done um, the same thing on a smaller scale digitally and we found exactly the same thing and we've done a lot of it using mail. And I did the a test in the States about a couple of decades ago where we sent uh, personal letters to a hundred charities asking them about their monthly giving program to see how they mm-hmm. respond. I was analyzing this for a conference and 50% of the organizations didn't even acknowledge it. And there were only three personal ones that came back out of a hundred wow. and out wow. of the 50 that didn't respond, I knew a bunch of them had monthly giving programs. But so I think it's happening however you connect with charities because they're either understaffed or disorganized or don't have as much as anything to systems set up to do things efficiently. And then Mm -hmm. you throw on the digital layer and you're dealing with tech stuff. And it's amazing there's any charities still operating out there. I tell you what, I was signing up for emails this morning and I was just getting so frustrated thinking about how, how are we still succeeding? You know, I think it's a testament to like the human will yes. <laughs> that uh, as much generosity happens as it does. Well, it's one of the things that um, I appreciated about the, the book is how simple and tangible it is. You know, whether someone has a recurring gift program that's really advanced, there's a lot of nice little checks and balances. But especially if people are just starting out or, you know, are looking to grow or expand, there's so many clear, tangible, you know, takeaways in the book. So I highly encourage people to, to read the book. So thank you for updating uh, what you know and for writing it. Um, what's it called? What's your book called? Monthly Giving. How to Build oh, Lifetime. Done. What's it called? How to Build Lifetime Donors. I know. Well, here's what's kind of funny is I have to <laughs> check it myself. It's called How to Create, How to create lifelong, lifelong Donors, donors for Monthly, monthly Giving. There so it is. I'm, I'm just kind of tormenting you about it because it is a, a rather long title. I'm well, calling it I Lifelong think, Donors. I think um, I read the uh, manuscript that you sent me and it had a much different title back then. So right. my apologies. Oh, it's we'll way better sure to now it. too. I had a we'll contest sure on the title, it, right? which I, I had some good, good titles, but um, then I had people vote on them. Do you want to know what the winner was? Yeah. So I had a couple hundred votes and about a hundred titles that people, we narrowed down the top seven. And the winner came from my sister-in-law, who's not a fundraiser, (laughs) Kristen Thompson. And it was, is that a donation in your pocket? 
<laughs> and over 50% of people, mostly women, voted for this as the best title. And I, but I, my publisher somehow got scared. That's pretty genius, though. You got to use that somehow. Maybe, maybe the next book. Next book. Uh, speaking of other books, here's a segue. Um, one of the what books you wrote is called Power of Giving. And in it, you, you talk a lot about more like, you know, the philosophy of giving and why giving is good and how giving back helps us and, you know, at a more human level, more of like a donor perspective, really good book. Um, one of the things that I've always been fascinated with is we have a lot of reasons about why people give. And there's a lot of research going into why people give. But I don't know if we ask the question too much or have done as much research on why people don't give. Mm-hmm. Um, have you done some of this research or what are some of the things that you've seen that are kind of those, those barriers? I guess it could be the opposite of some of the things you talked about early, but are there some sure. specific things that you've seen that stop donors from giving? Well, if it's hard to give, people don't give. We know that for right. sure. Um, if you don't have emotional engagement there's, and there's not a, a reason to give, you have to move people emotionally. Um, you, we know the number one reason people don't give is because they're not asked. So that's in pretty much every survey. Um, I just had a, somebody from a hospital contact me about two months ago saying, our board doesn't want to raise money during the COVID crisis because they think it's inappropriate. I'm thinking, that is crazy. So our, our clients are hitting records past Christmas uh, giving because people are highly motivated in a crisis. So they decided not to ask because of the timing. That again, can't, I cannot emphasize enough. That's the number one reason why people don't uh, give. Some people don't give because they're afraid it's a mistake or there's not enough trust for an organization. Uh, and really, when you see story, well, in the States, when you see a story like people giving to a children's cancer charity and the Trump organization steals the money and they get fined and they're not allowed to run any more charities, that destroys trust in, in all charities. You think children's cancer, who would take money from a children's cancer? So when you have enough of these stories out there in the media, it makes people think, well, I don't know if the money's going to go where I want it to go. And that's a legitimate thing. My, I've been doing this for 40 years. There's relatively few uh, scams in charities, like really, really tiny. 99% of people's, 99.9% of people's money is actually going to the cause. Now, some some causes are obviously more efficient than others, and some people make bad decisions because every human does. But fundamentally, charities are really trustworthy, I think. Um, but trust is a problem. And if we look at all the trends around trust in the media and science and all these other areas, as all these things, government, as all these things diminish, uh, that does you know affect charities as well. Um, so I think... Lastly, I mean, I could go on with probably 10 more things, but I'd say one of the things is people have given to charities and they're not thanked properly. They're not uh, emotionally rewarded. There's no stewardship. Again, in the test we've done, uh, Mystery Shopper test, where you make donations, you get a receipt three months later only because you call the charity and they say, oh, we were so busy. That's why it didn't happen. Or... So, and they they were one of the smallest hospitals we made, you know, out of dozens of hospitals. And so they should have been able to handle that. And we see this all the time with charities. So I think if you give to a charity and you don't get a warm thank you, you're probably not going to give again. And again, I've seen in my personal life, I give a lot of money away because I like doing it. 
but if I'll send donations to five charities in one week and I get a great thank you, maybe a call from somebody, um, and then two months later, a receipt with a form letter from another charity, I'm thinking, I will probably not give to them again because I don't think they're doing a good job. They're not paying attention to their donors. Therefore, mm-hmm. are they even paying attention to the projects that they're running? Yeah. So. yeah. One of the, the common threads there that I don't think we talk enough is that the, in, the um, kind of impact that your experience with one charity has isn't isolated to just that one charity. Yeah. It, it has impact for your relationship with all charities. And yeah. so that's why one scam impacts all. You've got exactly. one crappy giving experience. It impacts another totally unrelated charity that could be great, but you go, you just, you don't get that good feeling. And it's, it's partly our fault because we do so much silo work mm-hmm. and we talk very yeah. specifically. And even on the research side, it's not until the last few years where I've seen any research that's trying to look, it's difficult, I understand, but trying to look more about um, donors don't exist like I give to one charity. They give to many charities, it's mm-hmm. fluid. And so much of our work and research is so, you know, binary and it's not the most useful. So I think that's something that everyone needs to consider is you having a crappy experience hurts all of us. You know, it doesn't just hurt you. Yeah. Uh, it hurts all of us. But uh, great point. Uh, those are some uh, some good things. Well, that's something that I'm going to hopefully be spending a lot more time trying to unpack. Of what are the specific reasons that people don't give? Because then we can address those and then make it easier and make it um, more possible for people to give. Um, anything else you want to add about the, the power to giving book? I know there's, there's a lot that's in there. Um, maybe, um, something on the more positive side on like the power of giving of, uh, something that you, you share in the book. Sure. Um, happy to do that. Um, the book I should say was written, but with a friend, Azim Jamal, and we did it in 2005, still in print. I'm happy to say, and it's kind of about nine languages and, it's a book, not, it's not a fundraising book. It's a book about all the different ways people can give to make the world a better place from uh, time, volunteer, mentoring, teaching children how to give, et cetera. So um, <clears throat> I've read it. I actually picked it up a couple of years ago after 10 years after I wrote it. I thought, hey, this stuff's pretty good. I should practice all of this. <laughs> and I do practice some of it, but I don't practice all of it. But I think what we know from research, and there's been wonderful research done by um, people like Stephen Post, who wrote a fabulous book um, uh, a few years ago, Why Good Things Happen to Good People, is all the research around giving and kindness is that when people do things that help other people, uh, it helps themselves. So if you're doing it without any expectation of something in return, uh, there's great benefits. And Azim's got a story of a friend of his who was in the hospital with depression, and he found somebody who's in worse shape than him. So he started kind of bringing her flowers or meals and stuff like that. And he found he cured his own depression by helping somebody else. Yeah. You know, there's research studies, peer-reviewed studies show that uh, kids who volunteer in high schools are kind of inoculated against suicide. There's way less chance they'll commit mm-hmm. suicide. Now, we don't know if it's the kind of the people who want to do this and then they don't go. Right. But, you know, so it's one of these things. They're not necessarily a causal relationship or maybe there is, but um, we know that people start giving more. Uh, it helps. And I, I don't know if I, I think I told you the story once before, but I'll tell again, hopefully it wasn't in the podcast. Um, <laughs> but a friend of mine who did not teach her children to give and work for a charity decided when they were about 18 and 20, to give them $100 each to uh, give to charity. And they had never thought about this before because they had no money. And they both did a lot of intensive research, researching charities. Both of them found charities they really liked. 
became volunteers and one of her, her daughter became a full-time charity worker because she got emotionally involved in this. And she said it had a huge impact on their lives, just even a small amount of money. So I think the benefits of giving are there uh, mm-hmm. for everybody. And you, we know if somebody gets sick and you bring them soup, it builds a community. Um, so, and you can give too much, obviously, but I think there's many things you can do to make the world a better place that don't necessarily involve a financial transaction. And that's why we wanted to write it. Yeah. Well, it's great. I actually just pulled it off the shelf the other day. Had to dust it off because it's been a while, but it's next to my bed now. So it's great. Um, well, I'm, I thank you so much again for coming on. We're going to end with a little bit of a speed round here with some seemingly unrelated questions just about you. And uh, yeah, we'll dive, let's dive into the speed round. So I know you're not a, a big TV, TV guy or a huge TV guy. So I'll ask you about books. Um, what's, a, what's a book that you've read the most or maybe, you know, enjoyed the most? One thing I've read, I figured, I calculated, I was thinking about that question. And I thought I've read thousands of books. I've read some, like could be a Raymond Chandler, like every three or four years, the big sleep site. But I was thinking the book and Yiddish Policeman Union a couple of times, Michael Chabon, love it. All My Puny Sirs, Miriam Taves, unbelievably fantastic book. But I thought probably the book that I will keep reading every couple of years for the rest of my life, and I've read a few times, is Peace in Every Breath by Tick not on t-h-i-c-h-n-h-a-t-h-a-n-h and he's a vietnamese buddhist and i've gone to meditation retreats with him and was involved in starting his foundation just because i'm thinking they know nothing about raising money i was supposedly meditating thinking they know nothing about raising money i have to talk to them about this and now they make they've got a great dynamic monthly giving program and raise millions a year so one of the things i'm pretty happy about and but the book is just great because it makes you more likely to live in the present, to be a kinder person, to be more thoughtful, figure out what's important in life, and read. But uh, I quite love it. And, and I found it on the bookshelf last night, actually, as I was um, dusting for the first time in a few years, because my wife was reorganizing the bedroom. And I thought, I have to read this again in the near future. Lovely, lovely book. He was, a, he was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize by Martin Luther King back in the 60s for his work around Vietnam and um, written over 80 books. So great, great mm-hmm. author. Wow, that's a great one. Thank so you. That's the short answer to the short question. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I knew I knew you a uh, prolific reader, so I was getting into some trouble there, but that was a great answer. Um, who's a person that you think people listening should follow, whether it's on social, read their book, watch their talk, uh, a, a person or two that, that, that we should be following? Well, there's lots. I follow, I follow quite a few people in different channels. I'd say Jeff Brooks is uh, one of my favorite writers. Roger yeah. Craver at the Agitator Donor Voice, fabulous. Um, they're both super smart, and they've been both around. I mean, they're older white guys, but they've been around for 40 years, and they've got experience uh, up the yin-yang. And um, so I find... Um, they're thoughtful and great writers, and so they've been too. And then in the social media world, there's Sarah Kenzador, who writes on politics, brilliant mm-hmm. writer, writes for the Globe and Mail, is often on CNN. Judd Legum was an investigative reporter who really is part, hugely responsible, I think, for a Stop the Hate campaign to stop advertising on Facebook. And he's essentially a one-person operation. And the investigative mm-hmm. journalism stories that he breaks, phenomenal. So 
I pay mm-hmm. five, 10 bucks a month to get on his newsletter. A lot of them are free and it's Judd, J-U-D-D-L-E-G-U-M. So um, big fan of his. So cool. that's the short answer to another short question. No. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Well, then here's, here's a total wildcard one, but um, it's, it's a question we were asking on the lunch table the other day. And I thought, oh, Harvey might have an interesting answer to this one. So if we had to completely restart civilization today, from scratch, there's literally nothing built. You, w- you wake up, you're naked in a field. But we have all of the knowledge that we have today. So everything that we've ever learned through human history, we still have that knowledge in us somewhere. How many years do you think it takes us to kind of rebuild and get back to the, the place where we are now? You mean to make a mess? <laughs> well, that was the question that I asked. I was like, well, would we really want to rebuild <laughs> what we have? Uh, so you can maybe do some different tweaking, but I mean, in terms of like infrastructure and, you know, internet or those types of technological advances, how, how many years do you think it would take? Well, I guess it depends on the population and if you have to create all the tools and stuff like that, so I assume that they don't exist. So I'd say 150 years would be my guess. That's, uh, Especially cause I, hope we never have, I hope we never have to figure out what the actual number is. Um, what was the guess anywhere? around the table? Well, I think it was as low as like 10, <laughs> Someone said like 10 years. And there's just like silence. Uh, I think I said 78, which in hindsight is, is too low. And then I think someone else said like 2000, which is also, I think a little extreme on the other right. side. So uh, I think 150 is probably, probably pretty good. All right. And last one, uh, what's, what's a, a charity organization that you think is doing some great work right now? Maybe one of your favorites or one that you support. Uh, Stand would be one of them. It's an environmental group in Canada and the States. And so we give them a lot of money for their projects. Sabor Berman, uh, environmental hero, is one of their key people. So that would be one. Um, And I guess there's like, I would say I probably give money to about 20 charities in a year. It's hard to kind of pick a favorite. Some of them like Oxfam. I've been giving to for 40 years every month mm-hmm. plus other donations. So, so there's a lot of them, but I, I also give a lot of money to uh, arts organizations, especially in Canada, because mm-hmm. they have a hard time raising money. So yeah. theater groups, the Vancouver music festival, I'm on the board of the writers festival. So love the arts and again, so few people give money to them though. So, oh, there you go. But I should say, just to add all the royalties for all my books, I donate. And for this, um, I don't know if your audience will like this, but I'm going to give all the royalties this year to BIPOC organizations because I think um, that's important. Yeah, I saw that. I think it's a great move, and uh, I'm sure many will appreciate it. Um, well, thanks again. Where can people find out more about you and your book, How to Create Lifelong Donors for Monthly Giving? There you go. Nailed it. Very right well done. <laughs> uh, um, well, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. We have a website, harveymckinnon.com. McKinnon's MC. And um, yeah, and so, and if you want to email me, info at harveymckinnon.com. And so, great. I'm on your, cool. every three years, I'll be on your podcast. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll be sure to share out the link to the book as well. Thanks again, Harvey, for coming on. Thanks, Brady.
Hi again, this is Brady, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to listen to all future episodes or maybe go back and listen to some of our past episodes, you can do so by going to generosityfreakshow.com, or you can search The Generosity Freak Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, pretty much wherever you listen to your pods. And uh, if you have any questions or a suggested guest, or maybe you yourself would like to come on the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at podcast at nextafter.com. That's podcast at nextafter.com. And if you want to find out more about this vision to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world and what we're doing at Next After in terms of research, resources, and training, you can find out more at nextafter.com. That's nextafter.com. Thank you very much for listening. And finally, I have to say thank you to Nathan Hill, our producer and mixologist. This would not be possible without him. So thank you, Nathan. And thank you once again for listening.